Well, it's great to have everybody tonight. Thank you for being here and thanks for being on time. Um, I'd like to let you know, uh, this is going to be a little interactive tonight. We've got a lot of scripture verses that we want to review tonight. Some of those I'm going to go directly into. I'm going to read them myself. They're going to appear immediately behind me. And when I say, would you read with me? You can pick up your eyes from your notes and follow along because that's where the scripture verses are going to be. When I ask you, would somebody please read? I'm deferring now to you so that someone would interactively read the scripture verses for me. Please do not be shy. Please, if somebody happens to speak on top of you, one of you is going to drop out. It'll just happen. Uh, don't both of you drop out, but make sure that, you know, one of you does drop out. So it's going to be a little interactive tonight. And, you know, of all the, of all the subjects, all the doctrine that we get an opportunity to teach, the one on the gospel is, it's, it's our favorite story, isn't it? So we get to look in that. We get to look into that tonight. So let me pray, and we're going to get started. <clears throat> Father, I ask that you will do for us tonight what Jesus did to the disciples after the resurrection. You opened the mind of the disciples so that they would understand the scriptures. Father, we we're wholly dependent upon you to do that for us tonight, that you would open our mind to perceive the scriptures, to perceive what you have done, long before this world was ever cast into existence, way before the foundation of the world. Would you make this story, this truth, alive in our heart? And may it continue to change us as we look deeper and deeper and more and more at your glorious gospel. And thank you for this tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week when you were here, Jerry taught on the mission of the church. If you did not get an opportunity to... Uh, participate in that or get to listen to it. It's available online. And for any reason you have difficulty downloading something from online, let Larry know. Larry back at the back who helped everybody check in. And we'll make sure that you'll be able to get a CD for that. Okay? You should have notes in front of you. And so I'd like to start off with Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. This is the church and its message. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me is really served to advance the gospel. Well, the gospel was the mission of the early church. It's Paul's mission. And because it was the mission of the early church, it's also our mission. Those who become members at Gulf Coast Community Church not only join with the staff, the elders, but all of the members in the congregation. And this is what we partner together to do, is to make the gospel known and always to advance the gospel. So what is our purpose tonight? What do we want to accomplish? We want to examine the gospel story so that we can love it, we can live it, and we can advance it. If you've been around Gulf Coast for any period of time, you've probably heard those phrases mentioned over and over again. We don't love the gospel, live the gospel, and advance the gospel. We want to speak that clearly tonight, open up the gospel story so that we're all on the same page in running after this gospel. Jerry Bridges has said, and this is in your notes, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet thousands of professing Christians live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy 
of living by it. Now, you notice on that very front page that you have, there is a section for you to write. And what I'd like for you to do, just for the next two minutes, just take two minutes, and would you write out your understanding of the gospel? I'm going to have to make it brief because you only have a few lines there. You're not going to be graded on this. You're not going to trade papers and see if they got it right. This is just to get the juices going again so that we can see as we go through the night where our understanding of the gospel might need to be bolstered just a little bit. So would you take just two minutes and go ahead and write out your understanding of the gospel. Just answer this question. What is the gospel? Okay? And then I'll be back with you in two minutes. Hey, guys. Do you guys have pens on you? Do you need? Okay, great. Understand the gospel. Yeah. What is the gospel? Thank you. Okay, how are we doing? Can everybody read this? Is that big enough for everyone to read? So it's interesting because Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, the first letter, he, are you guys need another minute? Okay. So when he's writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he says in verses 3 through 4, he's reminding of the gospel and he says, For I delivered unto you that which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Right there in two verses, he rehearses in a nutshell, in microcosm, the gospel for the Corinthians. He is going to take, and this is where we're going tonight, he is going to take three full chapters in Romans, and he's going to open up that nutshell a little bit more. What is the gospel? And we're going to answer that as we continue to go on. So we're going to look at, he's going to set the stage for what is the gospel, over the first three chapters, and then we'll touch base just a little bit on Romans chapter 5, and that's where we're headed tonight. So let's look. The gospel is the center of our mission here at Gulf Coast Community Church. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, would you read with me? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised 
beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Ron, I want to ask if you'll keep that verse up for just a minute. Paul's life was set apart for the gospel. The gospel was the center of everything he did. His moving, his being, it changed who he was. The gospel was the very purpose of his mission. And gospel, I want you to know right now from the beginning, the gospel is a promise. Most religions, typical religions, ask you to do something so that you can earn something. The gospel is good news. The gospel is a promise. It started out in Genesis 3.15 when um, after Adam and Eve had fallen, and he said that he was going to crush the head of the serpent. That was the very first instance that we see of the gospel being spoken. But it was spoken as a promise. Very, very important for us who've been in the, in the gospel, who've been in the church for a while, to remember that the gospel is first a promise. Otherwise, we'll try to make it something else, and we'll get into uh, works of trying to do works of righteousness in the power of our flesh. So we have to come back over and live again and again in our lives of the gospel as first a promise. Now, he said something very important in those scripture verses. Uh, Two of them I want to call out. First was the gospel was promised, which we just spoke about. Second, that the gospel is concerning God's son, Jesus Christ. Some people will say, um, the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, Jesus Christ came to give you life and life more abundantly. Is that true? Well, yeah, it's true. But sometimes when you're speaking to someone about an abundant life, all different kinds of things can come to their mind. An abundant life could be, hey, you know what? I got a, speaking for a guy, I got a good looking wife. I'm driving a nice car. I'm living in a good neighborhood. Good kids. Yeah. Abundant life can go that way. Now, does God give us abundant life? He does give it abundance. He does give us abundant life, but it doesn't start there. The gospel starts with Jesus Christ. He is the main character, and it's important that we keep him to be the main character. All believers who are all believers are called to belong to Jesus Christ. From Romans chapter one and verse six, our identity. We too need to have lives that revolve around the gospel. And it's vital for us to understand that. Kevin Turner said, and this is not in your notes, but I thought it was a very good quote. The gospel cannot leave you as you are. The way you are and where you are, or it cannot possibly be the gospel that you've received. Let me repeat that again. The gospel cannot leave you as you are, the way you are, or where you are, or it can't possibly be the gospel that you have received. It changes us. It is a it is a new birth. Remember when Jerry was talking this morning about Zacchaeus, and that when the gospel came to him, how it changed his life, and it was easy, evident to see. It changed him, but it also even changed the idol of money that was for him. The gospel affects us. Our lives are to revolve around it. And Paul goes on to say in verse number 16 to explain that the gospel is central for him. Why it's central for him? And he never shies away from sharing the gospel. He knows it is the very power of God to meet the need of all mankind. Would somebody read Romans 1, 16 and 17, please? God 
So the gospel is the power of God. Scripture says of him that Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, setting people free. And subsequently, he was rejected, he suffered, he died, he rose from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. And it is the very power of God that brings salvation to all who believe, whether it's a Jew or whether it's a Gentile. The message itself, the gospel message itself, has power to save. That's what changes people, not our techniques. So it brings new life to people. It's the message of the gospel, and that's what we're looking at tonight. The reason that the gospel is the power of God for salvation is because the gospel reveals a righteousness that is through faith. Very good question. It's not on your handouts. Why do we need a righteousness from God that is by faith? Why do we need a righteousness from God that is by faith? And if we don't get this right, we're not going to get the gospel. We're not going to understand the gospel. So, why do we need a righteousness from God that is by faith? Well, Paul begins to immediately open this up in the rest of Romans, uh, where we begin to look. So, the first thing he does, he begins to reveal that God The gospel begins with God as creator. Would somebody read that first paragraph that's on your notes, please? So what we find in the scripture verse that we're about to read is that man is first accountable to God. And secondly, that man has rejected him as creator and ruler of his creation. And that's why I say if we don't get this part, then we won't understand the need for the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's long. Hang in there with me. I'm going to read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Can I stop right there for a minute? I want to reemphasize. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. A lot of times we start to th- we think that unrighteousness is because... We're breaking rules or somebody's immoral or they're not moral enough. And that's unrighteous deeds. But actually, in this passage of Scripture, Paul, God is defining unrighteousness as not honoring him, as not giving thanks to him. So continue to read. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed of God forever. Amen. So anything, any issue, any sin that stands in the way of our faithfulness to God's design and Christ's commands as an outcome of unbelief. It's actually, it's a worship exalting the creature 
more than the creator himself. So how do we get here? How did mankind get from being created in the image of God to this place of worshiping other created things? And he continues to let us know that all of this is because it's rooted in the rejection of the creator. And it started back in the Garden of Eden. There, They rejected God's right to rule over them. Man grasped the right to determine good and evil for himself. And since that time, everyone born in the human race is born with an innate sense of rebellion against God. Sometimes people stumble over that. Hmm. There's a couple here at the church that, uh, wonderful couple, they now have two children. And when they had their first child, about the time the child starts to reach 18 months old, you know, just, you know, kids, when you first get them and they're holding them in the arms, it's just like, boy, the the breath of heaven, the breath of life. And it's just, it's a, hmm. It's a really cool thing that God gives to parents. But then they turn 14, 15, 16, 18 months old. And it was easy. It was, it was really humorous what this one guy said. He said, man, I'm starting to see all this kind of sin come out of her. Not something that he had taught her, but something that was natural, something that was innate. Do you remember when Moses, after the children of Israel, he brought down the the two tablets, Ten Commandments, and there was all kinds of hanky-panky and stuff like that going on down there. Uh, He broke the tablets. Well, God said, go back up with these two tablets, and I'm going to give you uh, those words again. I I will inscribe them. And when he did, he passed before Moses, and this is what he told Moses. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We're born with this innate sense of rebellion against God. You know, sin, sin is social. Of all the things that sin is and can be, it's also social. That's why he said it goes down to the third and fourth generation. So if a guy starts to perceive a certain thing, let's say about a woman, and perceive her wrongly and sin against her in the, in the heart, that affects the way that he views his family. It's social. And it moves from that family to, to the next family. So we're born with this innate sense of rebellion against God and it, it is a rejection of God as our creator. God's word declared that the day Adam ate from the tree in the middle of the garden, he would die and die he did. That day, mankind was disconnected from the author and source of life. Physical death was inevitable. And it's interesting, if you've ever looked at Genesis chapter 5 through 11, you start to see that death came. And it's just a litany of so-and-so died and so-and-so died and so-and-so died and so-and-so died. He spiritually died that day. But they also physically died. The biblical assessment of man, just eight generations later after what Adam did, is that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was evil all the time. It didn't take long for man to reach the place where his condition was much like that, that we just discussed and read from Romans chapter 1, that long passage we just went through. When we get to the New Testament, the book of Acts, for example. Jerry was in this morning on, on Acts chapter 14 where Paul and Barnabas went into um, the city of Lystra. 
Where did Paul start his gospel? He started his gospel with God being the creator. So the very first thing is God is the creator. That's where the gospel begins. And with him as creator, obedience and thanksgiving and worship are due him. Going to the next section, in this fallen state that we just talked about in that passage of Scripture, Romans 1, 18 through 25, men did not honor God nor give thanks. Let's open that up just a little bit more. The gospel will then address man's greatest need. So what is the greatest need the gospel addresses? And in short, it's sin. Mankind's rejection of God is not a, nor- a minor problem. It has affected every aspect of our being. The word king throughout Scripture is mentioned many times, God being our king. When we rejected him as king, we, we actually we de-godded God. We took him out of the position of being God in our hearts. Now, he didn't move. He's still God, but in our hearts, we de-godded God. We exalted ourselves and decided that things should start to revolve around me. Instead of being God-centered, man became man-centered. So our rejection of God as king is not a minor problem. It's affected every aspect of our being. And while we're not as sinful as we all could be because of God's restraining grace, sin has touched and stained every part of our being. Another way to say this was that we have failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of us fails God, and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. The New Testament describes this condition as man being under the reign of death. And because we no longer have access, like Adam and Eve no longer had access to the tree of life, man without God no longer has access to the giver of life, and he will exist in separation from God, and therefore will exist in a state of eternal death. And that's the just consequence of our rejection of God's rule. I'm going to move quickly through Romans chapter 2. Paul goes on to describe man's desperate need. First, we all have to stand before God and give an account for our works. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in our body, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So we're all going to have to stand before God. And if our works are self-seeking, disobedient to God's law, there will be wrath and there will be fury. Can I just tell you for just a second? Let's just talk about law when the scripture says law. We know we've read passages before where it talks about the law and the prophets. And actually, if you look, basically all of the Old Testament is law. But in this sense that we're talking about here, law would be all of the righteous, holy commands that God has given to man. And that would include moral, religious, civil obligations that we have. Obligations such as, he's shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk whole, humble before our God. So, if our works are self-seeking, disobedient to God's law, then there will be wrath and there will be just fury. Paul's description of mankind's problem concludes as follows. Would someone read for me, please, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19? Suppresses the truth by their wickedness. 
No, not the right one. Could we do <laughs> Romans 3, uh, 9 through 19? I thought I'd heard that one before. <laughs> Ron, thank you very much for helping us here tonight, buddy. Appreciate all your help. Um, we're struggling? Okay. Am I going too fast? Okay. Should I go ahead and read it? Okay. So, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19, we're looking at, at Paul talking about man's problem, and he concludes as follows, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Boy, this is hard to read, isn't it? Even as a believer, this is hard to read. If you're an unbeliever and you're hearing this, what? No one does good? What about doctors without borders? Isn't what they're doing good? I'll come back to that. Let's continue to read. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. What? Really? No one does good? No one seeks God? You think about you think about this world and the religions of the world. Man, we're deeply religious people. No one seeks God. No one does anything that's good. Here's what happened before faith. Before we came into faith, the works that we did were somehow self-centered. Even when we reached out to do charity for other folks, somehow there was a kickback. There was some kind of repayment that we got for doing well. Maybe it was earning the acceptance or the love of another person, but it was more self-centered. The good works that God's talking about here is the ones that are done for his glory and for his honor. So the verdict is that the whole world is accountable to God. We are all guilty before God and unable to change that. Man is unable to achieve righteousness leaving all of mankind with a great need for a Savior, a salvation from God's wrath. And now that Paul has described the fallen state of mankind, he goes back to the discussion of a righteousness that's by faith and how it comes through Jesus Christ. You guys ready for some good news? <laughs> okay, so we've gone through creation, we've gone through the fall. Now let's talk about redemption. Are we where someone can read Romans three twenty-one through 22? That's very good. Thank you, Gustav, right there. At the core, then, the power of the gospel rests in this. Righteousness from God is available for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. You know, one of the big ways Christians are different from other people. There's a lot of people that try to stop doing wrong. How are Christians different? We also stop trying to 
be good, to get some kind of points with God. We recognize, like Paul said, I don't have a righteousness that's of my own. Instead, my righteousness is of God. So there's a righteousness through faith that's in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, verses 22 through 26. For there is no distinction. I'm picking up where you had left off. There's no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. There it is. There's the promise again. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. For this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Redemption has been made available to us because God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins. Now, the word redemption is not a word that we use a whole lot in our culture. If you've been around as long as I have, you might remember when uh, several decades ago you could take a product, an item, that you really liked. You didn't really want to get rid of it, but you were in a situation where you had to, so you went to a pawn shop, and they paid you so much money for that pawn shop. Things got a little better for you, and you went back to the pawn shop, and you redeemed back. You bought back that which was precious to you. So redemption in the New Testament and the Old Testament had more to do with the act of buying back a slave. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, they didn't have chapter 11s. So if you went financially under, you had to sell yourself as a slave to someone who could buy out your debt. And sometimes you even had to sell your family. And that was true until the debt was completely paid back. Unless you had someone who loved you and wanted to buy you out of that slavery. And then they would redeem you out of slavery. Now here's what Christ did for us. He redeemed us out of the power of the enemy. And he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So, redemption, the act of buying back a slave, that's what God did for us. And he was able to do this because he put forward Jesus as a propitiation. What does that mean, propitiation? Well, first, God had put forward Jesus because he was his perfect son. Never fail. There's no judgment due on Christ. He was the perfect one to set forward. He had given the Father the worship due his name. And therefore, he didn't need a payment for his own sins. Second, and this is in your notes, Jesus was a sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. What is a propitiation? Okay, it's a big word. Eh, maybe not so big. It's a couple of syllables. But it's not one that we use a whole lot. Propitiation. What does it mean? It's mentioned here in this passage of Scripture. It's also mentioned later in, in 1 John. A propitiation. Real simply, and because I'm watching our time, a propitiation is that which turns away God's wrath. And so, perfect lamb, perfect Christ, sacrificed, was able to turn away the wrath of God from us. That's what a propitiation is. God was satisfied with the perfect 
sacrifice of Christ. And so he became a propitiation for our sins. Jesus could absorb the wrath of God for our sins because there was no wrath due him. And through faith in him, trusting his work on our behalf, our guilt has been removed. Third, being a propitiation allows God to remain just by punishing sin as it must be. Sin can't be swept underneath a rug. That would be unjust of God. So this allows God, the propitiation allows God to remain just by punishing sin as it must be. You guys, do do you recognize that, you know, the Old Testament sacrifices when the blood was spilled, that blood of animals never, never erased a single sin. It was looking forward to the one sacrificed Jesus Christ who would. And that's why the scripture verse that, that we've read earlier talked about that in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at that present time when Christ had been slain so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteous standard remains true by having Christ be our propitiation. But now sinners can have God's righteousness as a gift. There it is again, promise, as a gift from God. John McIntyre said, God wants to take the flaming sword of justice raised over our heads to strike us and melt it into a shield to protect us. He said that again, really like that. God wants to take the flaming sword of justice raised over our heads to strike us and melt it into a shield to protect us. And he can do that because of a perfect sacrifice that Christ gave. And he paid the full penalty for our sins. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Now, are we there, Ron? Okay, could somebody please read Romans 4, 5, and 8? Anyone? However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will never count against him. So what do you do with the judge? That justifies the wicked, that declares the wicked innocent. What'd you do? Would you vote him out? I mean, this is what judges are supposed to do, right? They they protect the innocent and then they, you know, remove the wicked from society. God is justifying the wicked. How does he do that? He does that because of Christ, because Christ is our propitiation. And that's what makes him just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the great blessing of the gospel that we've been talking about tonight. God is justifying the ungodly because of the work of Christ. Acts chapter 13 reads, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's, I'm sorry, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. God justifies the ungodly by redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. The next section, the gospel transforms our relationship to God. This gets to this restoration phase. So we've talked about creation, fall, redemption, and now we're moving into restoration. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Our standing has changed. God is restoring us. The forgiveness of the gospel means we stand in a whole new relationship with God. We're no longer in enmity, at enmity with God. He's no longer holding our sins against us. God was reconciling the world to Christ, not holding our sins against us. Watch this. We're talking about reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once emphasized, once You who once were alienated and hostile in mind. How were we hostile in mind? We weren't loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We who were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Now he has reconciled us in the body of of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were once enemies. And now we're at peace with God. And Christ, Christ is committed to presenting us holy and righteous and blameless and above reproach before him. Jude says it this way. He says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before our Father with great joy. Unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Jesus is committed to his full salvation being worked in us. He not only saved us, But the gospel tells us that he's going to transform us into that holy people. Before we had faith in Christ, we were under the reign of death. Now, we're under the reign of grace. The fall was man's rejection of God's rule and reign over him. And the gospel restores the righteous and just reign of God. Because of Christ, we can now enter back into a right relationship to God as a ruler Paul goes on to describe in Romans chapter 5 that transforming nature of the reign of grace that we just spoke of, how we walk in the Spirit rather than under the law. You can read that in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 at another time. It's such a dramatic walk that really it's an apt, something so changed, God so changed us that it's an apt description, that it was a new birth, a new orientation. It was a work that was done in our hearts. You remember when Nicodemus goes to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he goes at night? It's interesting. (laughs) Uh, John was so good. Why would John give that detail? He went at night. And if you look actually at John's gospel, John does a lot of that. He contrasts light with darkness, light with darkness. And here Nicodemus goes at night. And uh, you know, you know the story. He's struggling, trying to understand. And uh, Nicodemus, in order to be the teacher that he was in Israel, had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, um, the Pentateuch, the writing of Moses. He knew that, and he'd memorized a lot of other writings outside of the Pentateuch. 
And Jesus says, how is it you're a teacher and you don't understand that you must be born again? And he goes, whoa, how do you do this? How does a man go back into his mother's womb a second time? Teacher, we know you must be from God because nobody can do the signs and wonders that you're doing unless he's from God. And what does Jesus say to him? He just gets in his face. And he says, Nicodemus, you think because you see a few signs and wonders that this is the kingdom of God? I tell you, the kingdom of God is seen by those who've been born from above, from those who've been born again. Something happened to us when we believed in Christ. We became alive to God in a way that we had never been before. We're alive to God. We do have a new orientation. A great way to describe it is that it is a new birth. The gospel ultimately speaks about how God loved his enemies. Us. But it also calls us to love our enemies. And this is just a simple way of how we talk about love the gospel, live the gospel. Loving our enemies is a simple way. Hard, but a simple way of living the gospel. It means to come under Christ's reigns and be conformed to his image. It's the restoration of man back into the image of God in which he was originally created. The gospel truly answers the fall of man and gives God all the glory for it. So what we've discovered tonight, we've been given a right record through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's his full and it's his complete work, and he is working his full and complete work in us transforming us into this image. Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you ever encourage yourself with that scripture? When you're struggling, there's a promise. The gospel's a promise. He who began a good work in us is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. It's our message. Oh, that we will become fluent in the gospel. Love to see this body, myself, become more fluent in the gospel. We need to grow in the knowledge of it. We need to soak in it. We need to speak it to one another. We need to speak it to ourselves. The gospel, we need to even bring correction using the gospel. We must allow the truth of who God is and what he's done and our new identity in Christ to inform all of our life. We need large doses of the good news. The very last point tonight, the gospel is what the whole Bible is about. When we began earlier tonight, we saw in Romans that the gospel is that which God had promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So while the whole Bible is not the gospel, the gospel is spoken of in the whole Bible. And so... The whole Bible is about the gospel. I hope that didn't sound like doublespeak. <laughs> After his resurrection, Jesus met two of his disciples going out of Jerusalem and going over into, uh, they were on the road to Emmaus. He meets them, and boy, you talk about some guys that were discouraged and just, just cast down because of the death of Jesus. And their eyes had been, had been closed. They weren't able to recognize that Jesus was actually walking with them. And they were discouraged. Um, even the report of the empty tomb did not help them. And Jesus said to them, 
He said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all of the scriptures, things concerning himself. One of the things that I've asked the teachers to do in New Creation Kids, we have just now completed almost two years of being in the Gospel Project. We've just completed being in the Old Testament. One of the things I've shared with the teachers is this. If you will just, as you read the Old Testament, keep one eye on Jesus, you'll be ahead of those two disciples. You'll be one step ahead of those two disciples. Because he was saying all that was written about me. The whole Bible is about the gospel. Later as he appeared at 11, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The gospel is concerning God's son. Jesus is the key to understanding the scriptures, for it is the ultimate subject about what the whole Bible is about. God made promises throughout history. Over 1,500 years, he made promises that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. When we say that the gospel of Jesus is what the Bible is all about, it means that all of the Bible ultimately either points to the gospel, is the gospel, or explains and gives implications and applications to the gospel. Tonight, here's what we've not done. We've not covered everything about the gospel. There's a passage in First Peter where he talks about the angels looking into this thing called grace. Now, you've got to know the angels are a whole lot smarter than we are. And they've been around a long, long time. And Peter is casting them poised almost over the balcony of heaven. And they were looking into, fixated on this thing called grace. It's not natural. What's natural is we ought to earn our way. But this thing called grace, this thing called the gospel, is the good news of what God has done. So what we've not done tonight is to say all that can be said about the gospel. But we have explained some key aspects tonight of the gospel. First, we've talked about God being the center, God being creator. It's about man's relationship to God as creator. It addresses man's greatest need, the fall. It offers righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ and redemption. And therefore, the gospel transforms our relationships with God. Indeed, it's all about the gospel in the scriptures. Earlier tonight, I asked you if you would write out your understanding of the gospel. Thank you for doing that. Now that we've walked through the first three chapters of Romans and Romans chapter 5, can I tell you in a very, very brief synopsis the gospel? And it's going to be mm, based on where I have carried you in the last 40 minutes. Okay? Um, And here it is. God stands over against us in wrath because of our sin and guilt. 
But God also stands over us in love. Because that's the kind of God he is. The gospel is the good news about what Christ has done for us. His full and complete work. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you that we can do that. That we can call you Father. That we are no longer enemies of yours. That you have drawn us by your spirit. You have drawn us in love. You have rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness where we walked with no understanding. And you have transferred us into the kingdom of your dear son. Oh God, help us look into that God. Help us look into grace the way that those angels did. Where after thousands of years, they're still scratching their head and going, look at this thing called grace. Open up our hearts to understand, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.